our purpose this year is to go through Ezra and Nehemiah. There is a handout, so if you're just coming in, grab that. Good. And we'll see how we do with that. We'll go through Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, uh, when I go through a book like Romans in a sermon series, that's going to look a lot different, right, than what we would do in Ezra. I don't take it paragraph by paragraph and break that up. Ezra has, as an example, um, what do you call those? Uh, what do you call those? Genealogies. And um, I don't know if I would take us through paragraph by paragraph for our study on those. So we'll just do some overviewing of these books, very important books. And um, I don't know if anybody remembers when I taught through this in Sunday school about a decade ago or a little more, probably not. So if, you don't, if nobody remembers, then we're good to go. But uh, some of this is newer material that I put together, and I've added Ezra into this, uh, this teaching series because those two were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible, still are, as a matter of fact. And so, um, and uh, covering the same time period and, and serving, I think, the, the main purpose, uh, both of those serving the main purpose that we'll talk about tonight. Um, a couple of resources I'm using because I like, I like to do that so nobody can accuse me of plagiarizing. This was originally from a, uh, I was assigned this back in South Carolina at a church there to teach through this curriculum for a Sunday school class from uh, Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And it uh, comes from Dr. Mark Minnick, who I had as a professor when I was at Bob Jones, and he's also a uh, well-known pastor down there. But anyway, it was called Israel, the Potter's Vessel Remade. And so it was like a 12-week study or something to that effect, and I was assigned to teach through it. I can never, though, I can never follow a curriculum. It always becomes different for me. I just, I have to do my own thing, but I like sometimes using those as a foundation and a base. So some of the points that I bring out throughout this will come from that. And, and again, I'll try to give credit where credit's due. And then another work that's really helpful to me on these two books because it's just, um, it's a good mix of the history, the theology of what's going on, but just some really warm features to it is uh, Derek Kidner's book, Ezra and Nehemiah. So these two really have been helpful to me. And so not all of my ideas, not everything that I teach is my original idea, but some have come from other sources. Uh, because we do stand on the, on the shoulders of those who go before us. And I believe Ephesians 4 teaches that, you know, that Jesus equips the church with teachers and local church teachers and other kinds of teachers that we've seen over the centuries that have arisen that are uh, helpful to us and their works are helpful to us. Um, let's go ahead and pray now and we'll ask God to uh, bless our time and open his word to us. Father, we want to, we are your people, um, a people set apart for your purposes, a holy people. And I ask that as we study these very important books, that you would help us that you would open our eyes so that we could see wonderful things out of your Torah. 
that we would be able to apply them into our lives and most importantly see your plan for the ages in Christ that was being worked out all these centuries ago. So I ask now that you would guide and help. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so again, I've given you a handout, um, but I might detour from that a little bit and different things, So, um, but I'll try to point out most of what is on here. It's just kind of a, as you can probably see by looking, just an introductory week <clears throat> about the book as a whole. And we're going to focus mainly on Ezra, and we'll take Nehemiah when we get to it. But this is a, this is a whole time period uh, together. The author is probably Ezra. We know he at least wrote the first person parts that we will get to in chapter 7 and beyond as he's recounting what they call his memoirs of what they did and when he uh, finally heads out to Jerusalem. And it's important to keep in mind, even though the book bears his name, he doesn't show up until chapter 7, which is decades after everything launches. Um, and, uh, and then Nehemiah, of course, although a lot of the dates are questioned and such, you know, shows up in the book of Nehemiah. His name means help. Ezra is a transliteration right from the Hebrew. It's just Ezra, that's the Hebrew word, and it means help. Um, or one who helps. And uh, this is, you know, of divine appointment in some ways because that's exactly what Ezra is sent back to the land to do, even commissioned at the time that he is by uh, the emperor of the Persian Empire to go back and help in what's going on in Jerusalem. We'll learn more about him as time goes on, but he was a, uh, of the priestly lineage. He was a descendant of Aaron. And he was also a scribe. And in chapter 7, when you're introduced to him, it tells us he was a skilled scribe, like known for being good. What, uh, what he did and what scribes did, and they were so instrumental in the preservation of the historical records of the people of God, but especially of scriptures. They would hand copy scriptures. It was one of their primary jobs. And really, the official office of a scribe, even as you see showing up in the Gospels, many uh, conjecture that began with Nehemiah or uh, Ezra as he uh, was uh, the first one in, in that that we encounter. And so there became this whole order of scribes, and you see them even showing up in Jesus' time. These were men who would have been extremely familiar with the Old Testament, but specifically the first five books, the Torah, and most of them were told anyway uh, from history and legend that they had it memorized, which if you think if you gave your life just to recopying these things, how much more familiar you would be uh, with a passage. One of the things I try to do when I'm studying a passage out of the New Testament is I'll handwrite that passage out and I use the Greek language because I have some training in that and I'll handwrite it out in that and it helps me even as I'm writing of course remember what I'm writing and see some things that fit so this would have been the, the world in which they lived and this was, would have been what he did but anyway we'll get more to him when we get to him in chapter 7 um, when we study the Bible and we just kind of parachute into a book 
it is important to place that book in a context, a biblical context. Uh, That becomes incredibly important with understanding what you're reading and applying what you're reading. Okay, so we want to do that with Ezra uh, now. We don't want to, to mess this up. Ezra is found in the Old Testament of our Bibles, what we call the Old Testament. And at the risk of sounding like Captain Obvious, that's pretty important actually, okay, for interpretation. This was a time that Israel was the identifiable people of God in the world. Uh, They were under Old Covenant law. New Covenant had not arrived in Christ yet, so they were under Old Covenant law. As we'll see in just a little bit, it's significant that Christ was born under law in order to redeem those who under law. So there's a time period in which we're in in our Bibles. And it is a time of anticipation and disappointment. They are waiting still for many promises. As a matter of fact, during this time period of Ezra and Nehemiah, the other prophets have been around except for Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi, which are Zechariah, Haggai, or during the time of Ezra, we'll see them show up, and so we'll need to look at some of those teachings and those prophecies and such, but then also Malachi. But all the others had been uh, given already. And it was a time of anticipation for God's renewal, restoration, reformation of His people, bringing it into those wonderful kingdom promises. And even as we talked about this morning, many in Isaiah of earth-glorifying promises in which they were going to be a part of, and God was making that commitment to them. So we're in that time period, but I say of disappointment too, because if you were a Jew, things weren't really panning out quite the way you thought they would be. If you thought this was the big uh, temple rebuilding and in that of Ezekiel's day, and then all of a sudden you see the foundation of the temple laid, you understand why some of them were rejoicing and others who saw the previous temple and its glory were grieving and mourning. I had to be told by Nehemiah, this is not the time to be doing that. You must be uh, worshiping at this point and there should be joy. But anyway, it's important to place ourselves in that context. They were waiting for the promises of kingdom glory. Okay, more on that in a few minutes. Now, Ezra is specifically found in the historical portion of the Old Testament. Okay, now I I have this part on the handout, right, where you have books of law, books of history, books of poetry. I will make uh, make mention of this fact, that in the Hebrew Scriptures, it is only divided into three parts. Um, The law, or Torah, uh, the writings in the prophets. And the writings uh, include like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, but also Ezra and Nehemiah, interestingly enough. They have a different way of breaking up the Bible, but I think our English Bibles and the tradition of them is very helpful for us as New Testament people coming into this whole thing to see how it's broken up. So we have these four main sections of the Bible, Okay. You have the books of law, or sometimes they're referred to as the book by their author. Who's their author? Moses is, right? 
So you have the books of Moses or the books of law. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. This recounts, of course, world history uh, from its beginning. This recounts the entrance into the world of sin, the promise, even that we looked at this morning, uh, of God sending the promised uh, descendant of Eve who is going to be victorious over the devil. It, it includes those things, but it begins the formation and redemption of a particular people. And that, of course, becomes the nation of Israel. As God calls out Abram, eventually renames him Abraham, and then he has Isaac, that, the son of promise, and then he has Jacob, whom he renames Israel, and from them the twelve tribes of Israel are there. God delivers them out in these books of the law, and he uh, delivers them out of Egypt, brings them into that uh, wilderness wandering years into Mount Sinai, and he gives them his law and his, or Torah, his instruction, and forms them as a covenant community. And then there's the books of history. That's where we're going to find uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'll include Esther into that. Because in Ezra, between Ezra 6 and 7, that's the book of Esther, okay, in another place because she was still uh, in uh, captivity in the Persian Empire, of course, and everything that happened with her in marrying uh, King Ahasuerus and uh, other things. So that's going on there. And then, meanwhile, Ezra and Nehemiah focused on the land. So these books of history... They, they don't trace history generally. You get more of that in Genesis 1 through 11, right? They trace history, history specifically through one people group, the people of Israel, in relationship to their land. Now, this becomes real important with understanding Ezra, Okay. And for some of you, I recognize if you're, you've been in the Bible your whole life, this may be review, but this is really important. These books, Joshua through Esther, are books of history of the Jewish people, specifically in relationship to their land. What is the key thing that's happening in the book of Joshua? Yeah, they're taking the land, right? They're, they're inheriting the land under Joshua's leadership. And God had promised them this land, even though there were lots of people living in it at the time. And God said, this land is yours. They go in, they conquer, they take over the land. The land is distributed to the people. This becomes their land, or as we refer to now, the promised land, right? And that uh, land of Israel. They remain in that land and Israel grows and Israel in some ways, once you get through the weird book of Judges and all of that time and Israel gets their act together and God gives them a uh, uh, king and there's uh, some rulership and you finally get to David and it's prospering and Jerusalem is established and then you get to Solomon and the temple is built there and that is the heyday, if you will, right? of the nation of Israel in their land. Things are awesome at this time. The, the, the Gentiles are looking at them and saying, wow, look at this place and these people, look what their God has done for them, all that kind of stuff. But then what happens at the end of Solomon's life? What do he do? What do men usually do in the Bible when they get themselves in trouble? Who, 
Yeah, okay, right? Women get them in trouble. I always make that joke, and it's the women never laugh, the men do. It's all right, but no, women get you in trouble. Well, his wives led him, a very, the wisest man who ever lived until Christ, of course, falls into sin by worshiping other gods, and God says, I'm going to divide the land now. I'm going to divide the people. And so then you get that division of the land under his son, Rehoboam, uh, and you get the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin remain. Well, you read those histories of those kings and uh, uh, Samuel, but then also specifically in uh, uh, First and Second Kings, and it gets a little confusing because it'll say so-and-so was the king over Israel, and then so-and-so was the king over Judah, and you're like, what's going on? Well, that's the time of the divided land. And you see they have a sprinkled in there some good kings, but largely this king did evil in the sight of the Lord, followed in the ways of his fathers. And, and next thing you know, God warns them over and over again through those prophets to repent, to turn to him, to come to him for forgiveness and restoration. He's so patient with them for all of those years, sending those prophets, they wouldn't listen. So first of all, the Assyrian Empire comes in and invades the 10 northern tribes. And then the, eventually, the, God had maintained that the southern kingdom of Judah that contained Jerusalem and the temple. And in comes Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And they ransack it. They destroy it. They destroy the city. They carry off captive all of these Jews that were there. Plus, they carried off all of the utensils and the holy instruments in the temple. That becomes important because in these books, they get restored, just like God promised, okay? So that's what's happening. And Ezra and Nehemiah are in what we call the post-exilic books. They were after the exile to Babylon, because God promised his people would be there for 70 years. And through Jeremiah, he promises this. You've got 70 years in exile, and I'm going to bring you back. That's where Ezra 1 picks up. God fulfilling his promise to bring those people back to this specific land. Okay, Through this Cyrus, who we'll look at next week in this really miraculous event of this man, Cyrus, who was prophesied about uh, over a century uh, before his birth, and now uh, he is sending these people back. And then, of course, you have the books of poetry and the books of prophets. And again, I told you that during Ezra and Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai are the primary prophets, and then Malachi closes out the Old Testament prophets. So these are the last books of history. This is it before it goes dark, so to speak, with God speaking directly to his people in the 400 years before Jesus. This is it now. This is the end. He's bringing them back to their land. He's, uh, and he is uh, placing them there. Of course, they are. Uh, the key events are uh, the building of the temple under Ezra. Uh, Ezra being used in the recovery of the law, the renewal of the covenant. Okay? As he's brought back in there. And then finally, the rebuilding of, I said rebuilding of the law, I think it's supposed to be rebuilding of the wall, okay, in Nehemiah. And these events are very, very important to understand 
in our study of the Scriptures. There was also the reinstitution of some of the worship seasons we see right away, like Passover. So some of these very important things that they were supposed to be doing to worship God was being restored. Proper worship was being restored. The law was being recovered. The temple was being rebuilt. And the wall was being rebuilt. Now resetting these people as the people of Yahweh, right, in this particular place uh, and Him fulfilling these promises to them. Now, how are we going to study the book of Ezra and Nehemiah? How are we going to approach it? Okay. And there are a number of ways we could approach the Old Testament. Not all of them would be good or right. Okay. We could approach these books maybe only from the moralistic point of view. So we jump into them and say, ah, see what Ezra did here? That's good. Let's do that. Let's be like Ezra. Oh, you see what the people in the land did here? Let's not be like that. Now, don't hear me wrong. That is part of how you interpret the Old Testament. Paul makes it clear. These things are written for us as examples of what to do and not to do. It shows us how our Lord responds when His people do certain things. It teaches us about Him and His ways. It teaches us what is right and wrong, and there is nothing wrong with following their examples. But we're not going to approach it primarily that way. Things like that will come out, but they're all subpoints to the main points, okay? We're also not going to approach these as often is as good leadership and organization uh, principles, the 10 leadership principles of Ezra or Nehemiah or what have you. We're not going to do that. As a matter of fact, I always think it's funny uh, to read, let's see here, if you want to look at this in, in Nehemiah, I always like these leadership books on Nehemiah because I'm like, oh yeah, you're right, so... Nehemiah 13 is such a fun chapter on leadership for God's people. So if you look at Nehemiah 13 and you look at verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, okay? So that's good leadership right there, all right? That'd be my point in my leadership book. Okay, people, if you want people's respect and fear, you got to beat some of them up, like, right? Rip out their hair and humiliate them in front of everybody, right? That's not the way to do it. That's also another reason, guys, when we go into the Bible, we have to know where we're reading, we have to know what's going on, because we don't just look at something like that and say, oh, that's what God wants me to do. I, you know, I, I, if you were having a problem with somebody and that's your daily Bible reading, I'm like, oh, this is an answer from the Lord of what I get to do to this person, right? That's not how we want to read it. So how are we going to approach Ezra and Nehemiah this year? First of all, before I go into this, any Questions on anything I've said so far? Is this pretty much... So when I... Let me ask you this. Or maybe I should. You don't have to answer, but I'm just always kind of curious about the biblical knowledge of who I'm teaching. Like how much of a grasp on the history of 
the nation of Israel and God's dealing with them, people have. And I've, that's not to shame anybody, so I'm not asking you how much you know, but it's important to know those things. The problem is, is that you've got, in our Bible, 39 books covering all these things. And it takes time to learn those, especially for people that came into the faith a little later or people who haven't been super consistent on daily Bible reading or they didn't grow up in a church that um, was teaching them through the Bible and stuff. So I don't say that to have any shame, but it's important. And you can get good overviews of these things as you look in a good study Bible. You can find good resources online that help you see the history of the people of Israel because it's very important to see the roots of where we came from, what God is doing in this world, what he's doing through them. And so use some of those tools in order to uh, do that. And one easy way to do it is to break up the Bible into the different kinds of books that are there and what he's doing in each one of those, okay? But this is how we're going to approach it. We're going to study Ezra, first of all, theologically. Ezra, or whoever wrote this, most likely him, was not just or not only a historian. These are books of history, but his purpose was not just history. These are theological books. In other words, they are teaching the people of Israel in his context, right? The returnees, uh, Look at what God has done in restoring us. This is who our Lord is. This is how He's done. This is how He's responded to things. Look at His faithfulness to us. Look how we should respond to Him. It's teaching them about their Lord. Okay? And that's true of really all of the Old Testament. One case or one uh, motive I give to people for reading through the whole Old Testament, I had to do it in a semester's time once, and you'd have to read long portions of it, you know, sit there for an hour and just read chapter after chapter after chapter. It does teach you a lot about God. You get to know this God uh, and what he thinks and how he responds, right? That's why it's one reason it's very important. It's theologically, it teaches us a lot about God. And the reason I love Ezra and Nehemiah is because it emphasizes two attributes of God. There are others that come in. Don't get me wrong, but two powerful attributes of God. The first is his sovereignty. His sovereignty is remarkable and breathtaking and obvious in this book. And Ezra makes that very clear in the way he says some things. Right down to the fact that God can put it into the heart of a pagan leader, a pagan king, to do his will. You don't get any more sovereign than that. That's, he is sovereign even over the hearts of mankind. That's powerful. He, do, he can do this. This is what our God can do. This is why we can have hope to pray for things going on in our nation and leadership. We know God can direct the events of history and present to accomplish his purposes whatever the glory of his name is doesn't matter who it is it could be a polytheistic pagan king and god can lay it on their heart to do something to serve his people you'll love this through and nehemiah these pagan kings are like supporting the work of the people of god 
sending them back, giving them money, ordering their protection, all through God's sovereignty in them. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And then, of course, his faithfulness. It does recount his faithfulness to the nation of Israel and those people. He made promises to them, and he's fulfilling them. He said you'd be there 70 years. How many years were they there in Babylon? 70 years. That's God's faithfulness. And he does that, of course, and works for them all according to his grace. As he tells them in Ezekiel, I'm about to act, but it's not, for you. It's not because of you. You didn't earn this. As a matter of fact, you've profaned my name among the nations, but because of my faithfulness and who I am, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore you, right? So there's faithfulness that's seen throughout this. And I think for us in our current day and age, um, going through any book and looking for examples of God's sovereignty and faithfulness is helpful. As we see things in the world around us, what do we need to be reminded of continuously? God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness. God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness. And His ability to use a small, insignificant band of riffraff to accomplish major things, global things, as a matter of fact. Like the, the smallness of Israel, the, the people that made it back into this land, that just the minuteness of them, the uh, unimportance of them in the eyes of the world, the insignificance. And yet, what does God do with them? He uses them in order to bring blessing to the world. And that is what my, my last point here is that we're studying Ezra this year Christologically. We always have to keep in mind when you're reading your Old Testament, God is fulfilling His ultimate plan for the ages through His Son, through the promised Messiah. The significance, the primary significance of the nation of Israel is this, that what was deposited to them were the covenants of promise and specifically the promise delivered to Abram that his descendant would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. That was their purpose. That was their mission for existence. And what we're seeing in Ezra and Nehemiah is God's faithfulness to keep working through those people to fulfill that plan. You notice, I think I have in your handouts Ephesians 1 and then Galatians 4. Do I have those on there? Yeah. Ephesians 1, listen to this, 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's His plan. And as we looked at this morning, it includes the children of God and the revealing of sons of God and even the groaning creation that's going to be glorified and we will live upon it. And then in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, notice that phrase, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know that? The, notice that? The fullness of time had come. So you open up your Bible to Matthew and reading those uh, Christmas narratives as we think of them now. That's the fullness of time. It had come. God had a plan for it. He knew when He was sending His Son. And at the right time, in the fullness of time, when the stage was set, when everything was in place as it needed to be to receive the Messiah, He sent forth His Son. Here's how that applies to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah is our books about the people of Israel and their history. Wait a minute. No, I got, here it is. Ezra and Nehemiah uh, play a significant role in the history of redemption because in these two books, God is bringing the Jews back to the land of Israel in order to prepare the people and the place through which and in which He would finally fulfill His world-saving promises. He would send his, the Christ. When we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, things are happening like a temple's being rebuilt. Who cares, right? Why do they need a temple? What's this all about? Have you ever thought about those gospel records and how important the temple was in the ministry of Jesus? Prophecies fulfilled directly by him going into the temple and the zeal for his house had consumed him and he's going in there through the temple had to be there. The Jews had to be in the land. The sacrifices had to be happening. The special seasons that they would celebrate, these uh, weeks that they would have to come, three primary a year that all faithful Jews would have to descend upon Jerusalem to observe these particular things like Passover. What happened in the life of Christ in Passover that was so significant in Jerusalem? What was the main event? The crucifixion, right? That happened at Passover. That's not something that we go, oh, that was just a coincidence. This, is ha- this had to be put in place. Well, when the Jews were exported out of their land, if God hadn't brought them back, it wouldn't be there. There'd be no temple. The Jews would still be scattered abroad. But God is restoring. He's preparing those people. He's preparing those places. Everything that needed to be in order for him to be there, was being set up. Even the wall itself is significant because Jerusalem then was a set-off city. And what did Zechariah prophesy? Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey, right? And he comes in, riding into where? Where did he ride into? Jerusalem. And Passover's happening at that time, so there are thousands of pilgrim Jews that have descended upon the city for that to see all of the events that are taking place. This all had to be in place in order for God to fulfill His purposes. This is the fullness of time being prepared. And 400 years after Ezra is when it happened. And even think about, and we'll talk more about this, I suppose, in the future lessons, but even you think about some of the so, such instrumental figures in the gospel narratives, high priests or Pharisees or the order of the scribes, those that were confronting Christ. All of these things had to be in place in order to fulfill the promises that God had 
for his world-saving purposes. Good. That's as far as we'll go tonight. What, what questions or comments or thoughts do you guys have? Anything? Yeah, Tana. I just always, I come back to Simon a Yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah. To the extent that liberal scholars, as they approach Isaiah, say that couldn't have been, that prophecy couldn't have been. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we reject that outright. It absolutely can have been, and it was. So, yeah, that's good. But it is like the world to discredit the truth of God's word. It is like the world. That's what they do. Yeah. Good. I would recommend to you, if you have the time or if you want to, to read through Ezra, read through Nehemiah, get your bearings in these books. If you need a refresher on the uh, history and different things, we will next week look at the empires, those major key figures. It's important to see who those people were, those uh, four major empires and how God uses those empires to fulfill his own purposes it's so amazing and wonderful so we'll look at some of those things next week so there will be some of that review on the history of people all right good well let's pray god thank you for this time thank you for your word thank you for your sovereignty and your faithfulness and i pray that as we read the bible we would see jesus learning not just facts though the facts are very important god we acknowledge that we need to know him but seeing christ seeing your grace and glory on every page, working your plan through that we are a part of. Uh, And we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen.